0: Canadian history, I'm your host, David Boris. The struggle for women's rights has been a long and arduous process in this country. In many cases, it has been a story of two steps forward, one step back. At every turn, at every crossroads, people have opposed efforts by women to gain greater equality, especially within our country's legal system. One of the biggest achievements in our country's long history of the struggle for equality amongst the sexes was the person's case, where five women, now known as the famous five, challenged the legal status of women in Canada and took their challenge to the highest court in the British Empire. This is Season 6, Episode 8, The Famous Five and the Person's Case. Today's book recommendation is titled The Famous Five, Canada's Crusaders for Women's Rights, This book was written by Barbara Smith, and it was published by Heritage House in 2019. To understand the achievements of the Famous Five, we have to first understand the environment, the world, in which these women were raised. Canada, at the end of the 19th century, was a patriarchal, white, predominantly English-speaking Protestant country. Women had few legal rights, little to no political rights, and were generally expected to operate within the domestic sphere. The natural rule for women, believed Canadian society at the time, was in the home, having and raising children, running a household, removed from the public eye. Yet things were changing at the end of the 19th century, primarily as a result of the growing social reform movement throughout the country. You see, social reform referred broadly to the myriad ways in which different groups and peoples sought to address many of the problems associated with a rapidly industrializing and urbanizing Canada. One of the main ideological drivers of the social reform movement was something called social gospel. Social gospelites essentially believed that God was at work in effecting social change within one's own society. Meaning, it wasn't enough to just go to church every Sunday, but real religious adherence was found in working to improve the lives of the socially disadvantaged, effectively applying the teachings of Christ to everyday life. Driven by this social gospel engine, the social reform movement gained greater and greater momentum by the end of the 19th century. Now, what makes the social reform movement, and in particular the social gospel strain of it, so interesting was that it was embraced by large numbers of women. Yet, these were specific groups of women. Generally speaking, the social gospelites leading the social reform movement were white, middle-class, Protestant, and English-speaking women. Why this group, you ask? Well... As middle-class women, they had the economic luxury to afford domestic servants and or nannies, meaning there was paid help within the domestic sphere to raise the children, run the household, etc. As well, as members of the middle class, their husbands or male heads of their households were able to draw salaries that did not require the women to work. This meant that for many women in the middle class, social reform work was a status symbol. It was a marker of one's class and socioeconomic position within society. As well, participants in the reform movement or reform movements, driven by the belief in social gospel, gave women a legitimacy to operate outside of the domestic sphere, in the public sphere, in the realm traditionally thought to be a male-only preserve. These social reformers could argue that they were doing God's work. They could also argue that in many ways they were attempting to take care of the nation, much like they would take care of their own domestic houses. Effectively, If women were seen as natural mothers and caretakers of the family and the home, then why not natural caretakers of the larger house that was the young Canadian nation? Backed by a religious angle and employing traditional gender concepts, many middle-class Protestant women flocked to the social reform movement. Now, social reform aimed at a number of issues, most of them related to problems within Canada's urban environment. Prohibition of alcohol, campaigns against prostitution and gambling, increased legal rights for women, voting rights for women, education reform, health, housing, even religious reform were all part of the social reform agenda at the turn of the century. Perhaps the most influential organization to come out of this period was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU. The first Canadian chapter of this organization was founded in 1874 in Ontario, and by the end of the 19th century, it had chapters across the country, also linked to chapters throughout the United States. It boasted tens of thousands of members, and while predominantly female in personnel, was able to exert significant influence on municipal, provincial, and even federal politics. It even ran its own WCTU candidates in a variety of elections. One of the most prominent, agenda items for the WCTU and other like-minded social reform organizations was the campaign for women's voting rights. Many prominent social reformers argued that if women were natural mothers and caretakers and the raisers of Canada's children, then it was only right and proper that they have a say in the political future of the country they were raising children in. What better way to affect society than to be able to vote for candidates who reflected many of these social reform ideals? Thus, women's suffrage became inextricably linked to the social reform movement and by the beginning of the 20th century was gaining significant steam. Before the outbreak of the First World War, most municipalities in fact were allowing women to vote while most provinces gave women the right to vote during the war, with the right to vote federally coming in 1918, shortly after the war's end. It should be noted, however, that voting rights for women were specifically for women of European ancestry, so white women, who were 21 years and older. So this was the society that the famous five grew up in. This was the society they were educated in and were active in. So who were the famous five? Well, before we answer that question, folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate 5 bucks for every episode we publish, Patreon allows you to set that up really easily. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program as well. On our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. We love the five-star ratings we've been getting. So please, please, please don't be shy. And thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So let's introduce the famous five. We begin with Emily G. Murphy, born Emily Ferguson. Emily was born in 1868 in Cookstown, Ontario. She grew up in an upper-middle-class Protestant family, attended the best girls' school in Toronto, and in 1907 moved with her husband, Arthur Murphy, and family to Edmonton, Alberta. Emily was an activist for a variety of causes related to women's rights and championed her cause primarily through her writing. She adopted the pen name of Janie Canuck and published a number of articles and books. Murphy was an advocate for greater rights for women over property and income. She was heavily involved in the suffrage movement. In fact, while Murphy was involved in numerous volunteer and professional organizations, her most groundbreaking position was that of police magistrate for Edmonton and later the entire province. This, in fact, made her the first woman magistrate in all of the British Empire. Henrietta Louise Edwards was born Henrietta Muir in 1849 in Montreal. Henrietta grew up in a middle-class Anglican family that was considered fairly progressive in terms of views towards women's rights and women's roles in society. Henrietta was well-educated, both at home and in private schools. By the 1870s, Henrietta was involved in a variety of organizations focused on helping young women gain greater independence through work and education. While an accomplished artist in 1878, Henrietta and her sister Amelia launched the groundbreaking magazine Women's Work in Canada, specifically aimed at working women. By the early 20th century, Henrietta and her husband had settled in Fort MacLeod, where Henrietta joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union and became the local president of the National Council of Women of Canada. In 1917, Henrietta joined forces with Magistrate Emily Murphy to push through legislation in Alberta protecting married women's property rights. Louise McKinney, born in 1868 in Franklin, Ontario, as Louise Crummy, was the sixth of ten children raised in a strict Methodist farming family. She was a good student, but was prevented from pursuing medicine on grounds of her sex, and thus became a teacher. In 1903, Louise and her husband James McKinney settled in Clare's home, now part of the province of Alberta, and Louise established the local branch of the WCTU. Louise, in fact, went on to help establish 40 different chapters throughout Alberta and Saskatchewan. She was a staunch advocate for women's voting rights and traveled extensively on behalf of the WCTU, giving public talks throughout Canada, the U.S., and even Europe. When women won the right to vote provincially in Alberta in 1916, Louise went on to become the first woman to ever win a seat in the Legislative Assembly in the 1917 provincial election. She worked with both Henrietta Edwards and Emily Murphy during her time as an MLA on bringing about legal reform for women's property rights. The youngest of the famous five was Irene Parleby, who was born in 1878 in London, England, and was perhaps the most well-educated member of the group, having been to exclusive schools in India, Switzerland, and Germany. Though raised in an urban setting, Irene met her husband while traveling in Canada, and after the two were married, they settled down to life in the town of Alex, just northeast of modern-day Red Deer, Alberta. The final member of the Famous Five is Nellie McClung, born Nellie Mooney. Nellie grew up on a farm in the Surrey Valley in what would become Manitoba. Even though she didn't attend school until she was 10 years old, she was a bright and eager student and eventually became a teacher by the age of 16. She quickly became active in the WCTU, and in 1911, her, her husband Robert McClung, and their four children moved to Winnipeg. Despite giving birth to a fifth child, she continued in her activism, becoming well-known for her public speaking skills. In 1915, the McClungs moved to Edmonton, where Nellie first encountered the other members of the Famous Five and campaigned for women's suffrage and prohibition. Like Louise McKinney, Nellie also traveled extensively on speaking tours, promoting the cause of suffrage, prohibition, greater legal rights for married women, and even workplace safety reforms. In 1921, Nellie was elected to Alberta's Legislative Assembly, and even went on to be a delegate at the League of Nations. Okay. So now that we understand a little bit about who the Famous Five are and a little bit about the devotion to activism that characterized the Famous Five, let's talk about the person's case. The person's case came about when Emily Murphy, on her very first day in court as a magistrate, was challenged by a defense counsel who said that, in fact, Murphy had no right to rule on a decision in that court, as she was not a person in the eyes of the law. Despite the outrage at this affront to Magistrate Murphy, the claim by defense was actually rooted in some legal truth. You see, an archaic 19th century law in Britain stated that women are persons in matters of pains and penalties, but not persons in matters of rights and privileges. Incredibly, this law, which affected British common law throughout the entire empire, had never been overturned. No matter how distasteful, legally speaking, the defense counsel had an uncomfortable point. From then on, Murphy and her colleagues in the Five began to discuss options to do away with the law in one great epic legal challenge. That opportunity came first in 1919. It was then that Murphy, as the president of the Federated Women's Institute of Canada, proposed to the then Federal Minister of Justice, Charles Doherty, that women be permitted to sit in the Canadian Senate. In fact, thousands of people signed a petition advocating that Emily Murphy herself be the first woman to sit in the Canadian Senate. However, Prime Minister Robert Borden rejected this request, citing that women by law could not sit in the Senate. Senators had to be considered qualified persons, and since women were not persons in the eyes of the law, they could not sit in the Senate. Despite ensuing governments professing support for Murphy's position, the law was never changed. But Murphy and her team were not done yet. In 1927, Murphy employed a little-known clause in the British North American Act, Section 60, which gave the right for five persons acting as a single body to request any interpretation of the law. To complete the five-person team, Murphy picked Henrietta Edwards, Louise McKinney, Irene Parlby, Nellie McClung. The famous five had assembled... the Famous Five were able to get their case in front of the Supreme Court, and their question read this, and I quote, If any statute be necessary to qualify a female to sit in the Senate of Canada, must this statute be enacted by the Imperial Parliament, the Parliament of England, or does power lie with the Parliament of Canada or the Senate of Canada? Effectively, Can women sit in the Canadian Senate despite this archaic law from Britain? Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the legal case, as it literally comes down to debates over the use of pronouns and the intention of pronouns by the original authors of the law. Resistance to the famous Fives petition was met fiercely, especially in Quebec, who had yet to give Quebec women the provincial right to vote. Suffice it to say, the Canadian Supreme Court did not give the famous five the answer they hoped for. On the 24th of April, 1928, the Supreme Court decided that the wording of persons was restricted to persons of the male sex. Now, at this point, you might think the gig was up, but the women were not done yet. No, not at all. They appealed the Canadian Supreme Court's decision, this time, though, to the highest law in the land, the highest law in the British Empire, that of the British Privy Council in London, England. You see, at that time, if a British subject living anywhere in the empire wanted to appeal a ruling in his or her country, her colony, her dominion, They could do so with the British Privy Council, whose decision was rendered legal in whatever country of the empire that person happened to reside. The Privy Council's Judicial Committee heard the appeal in July of 1929, and a ruling came out in October. The ruling was such, and I quote, "...their lordships are of the opinion that the word persons does include women." And women are eligible to be summoned to and become members of the Senate of Canada. Now it continues by saying this. The exclusion of women from all public offices is a relic of days more barbarous than ours. The word persons may include members of both sexes. And to those who ask why the word should include females, the only answer is, why should it not? The Famous Five had certainly made a huge step forward for women. But there are some caveats here. When speaking of a woman as a person, this was only applied to Caucasian Christian women. The Famous Five and others were very much a product of their time, where they believed ardently that the future of Canada was a white Christian future only. As well Several members of the Famous Five were public campaigners for an extremely controversial eugenics program in Alberta. This was a program of forced sterilization of women as a means of preventing, and I quote here, undesirables from procreating. And this issue gets explored in detail in Season 4, Episode 10. This eugenics program was particularly aimed at indigenous women, women deemed of low intellect or of mental illness, and others who did not fit within the visions of a proper Canadian woman set by the authorities at the time. In fact, the eugenics program in Alberta was even cited by the Nazis when they began their own demented and twisted eugenics programs in the 1940s. Emily Murphy also wrote the now-controversial book, The Black Candle, which effectively blamed the rising drug problems in interwar Canada on increasing Asian immigration. And while also chastising Anglo-Saxon peoples for encouraging drug use, made it very clear that people of color, African Americans for example, and other Middle Eastern and Southern European groups were diluting the strength of the Anglo-Saxon stock. The famous five were undoubtedly a product of their time, and their controversial participation in other aspects has been explored before and will continue to be explored. But they had won a landmark case for women's rights, albeit intended for white women only. Ironically, none of them would ever sit in the federal Senate. That distinction went to Karine Ray Wilson, who in 1930 became the first woman senator to sit in Ottawa. However, in October 2009, all of the famous five were posthumously made honorary senators. Folks, this will be the last episode of 2020, so before we sign off, I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year to one and all. Thank you to everyone for your continued and growing support for this podcast. 2020 has been a strange year, no doubt. It's been a year full of anxiety, fear, hope, togetherness, divisiveness, unpredictability, anger, and frustration. We've seen it all. It's also been a year for the history books. Decades from now, textbooks and podcasts and historians and novelists will harken back to 2020, And future generations will ask, what was it like? I hope during this crazy time that this podcast has in some way, in any way, given you comfort, no matter how little. I hope also that maybe it's given you a bit of hope. And what I mean by that is, if there is something we can learn from history, it's that we are always faced with challenges. And no matter how bleak or uncertain things look, Here in Canada especially, we seem to pull through and end up stronger on the other side, more just on the other side, being better people for what we've come through. I hope with this in mind that in 2021, you will get the opportunity, that we'll get the opportunity to showcase just how much we've grown and how much better we've become as people and as a nation, and frankly, as the human race. Happy New Year's, and all the best for a hopeful, positive, and happy future. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder... You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool.